as we look into our scripture, we will go to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. Our series is The Joy of Knowing, The Joy of Knowing, and uh, as we have looked at this and seen, we see there is a joy that comes in knowing our great God. It is indeed one of the, the aspects of the joy is the grace of our great God. But today we're looking at 1 John chapter 2, and just a few short verses, 12 and 14 through 14. And so we're going to turn there, and um, I'll ask you to follow along silently as I read, and then we'll bow for prayer and ask God's help to understand His Word. So we'll begin in chapter 12. I am, uh, verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's bow as we ask his help today. Gracious God, we need you today. Oh God, I need you and and how I communicate this. And I full well recognize the only words that are fit to remain in a heart are the words that are yours. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts, making the word clear, understandable, And also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the impetus, the grace to obey and to follow you. So, Father, would you meet with us today? Would you work in hearts in an unusual way that we might be submitted and surrendered to your word, that you might be seen and glorified in us? For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Why does it seem that some Christians, and possibly even us, start off really well in the Christian walk and then struggle with trials and tests and maybe the events of our lives. And it seems to pull us from a relationship that is deep and growing in God to one that is weak and maybe seeming anemic. How does it happen that we who know Christ, who are his followers, how is it that we sometimes experience those times that are overwhelming to us, either by sin or by circumstances and trials, and we respond in such a way that from our own hearts, we would seem that God isn't there. You know, we almost liken to human growth and development the stages of a Christian growth. We say we, we are babes, and then we walk, we run, and, it, and then we go to heaven. And we think of that, but in natural growth, all else being equal, we do. We are born, we begin to crawl, we walk, we run, and eventually we don't run so much as, as fast as we used to, and at some point, we do pass on. And there are stages, and we can see this, but, but Scripture doesn't lay out a 10-step plan. 
It doesn't talk about, well, what, what happens after running. What if we, we go back to crawling and we're only a few years old in Christ? What is it? How does it relate? Because Scripture, the New Testament especially, speaks of a growing, living relationship with God that continues for us as believers. But yet, we find ourselves in circumstances that are, that we're frankly barely crawling. And yes, indeed, sometimes it's because of sin. Maybe our sin tempts us and defeats us, and we forget that God has forgiven us and has offered forgiveness to us if we confess, but we choose to live in the defeat. Or maybe we are of a mind that we think that we, we have it all together, and so we don't think of active sin defeating us, but it is the self-assuredness of our pride that brings us down because we've got everything all figured out. At some point, do I really need God? Do I need that continual abiding and growing because, boy, I'm doing okay. And then we hit those trials and we realize we need help. John speaks in, in a way uh, that is maybe different to, for, for us about the ages and stages of Christian life. He's going to call out a, a whole group of believers, and then he's going to speak to those two age groups that uh, he really wants to emphasize here. Now, Paul writes to um, young men, old men, young women, old women, older <clears throat> women, not so old women, um, whatever it is. Uh, he writes and spells it out. John doesn't, he kind of loops, uh, kind of lumps us all in to two different life stages. We'll look at those in a second. First, he begins in verse 12, and he writes to a particular people. Verse 12 is all about this first group. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, little children. When he's talking about children, as he has done several times before, and will continue to do in his letter, he is speaking to all believers. So when we see this, he's using a term of endearment, but he's speaking to all believers. His children in the faith are those who will follow Christ. So don't be offended. Hey, I'm not a child anymore. He's speaking of those who have called upon the name of Christ and received salvation. So he says in verse 12 again, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his, Christ's, name's sake. I'm writing to you. Why would he feel the need to do this? Well, back to chapter 1. He talks about it. If we sin, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. See, here, very first, as he begins this overall arching of children of those who know Christ, he wants to remind us of a fact that he's already presented that sins are forgiven because of Christ's name's sake. That when we confess, we have forgiveness. Stacy, why is this important? Why does he come back and again write this? Because we, you and I, often live in the state of defeat 
because we don't realize that Christ has forgiven our sins. We confess, we receive forgiveness, and the adversary comes and says, God didn't forgive your sins. You're, those were too bad. Or those, you've, you've come too many times. I know it wasn't a bad sin, but you've come too many times, and you really think he's going to forgive you because, I mean, would you really forgive somebody? And we say, oh, yeah, we have a hard time with forgiveness, so I'll bet he, God does too. He's reassuring the children of God that their sins have been forgiven. But look at the, the important fact here, because of his namesake, Christ's namesake. Do you understand it's because Christ's work upon the cross. See, see, John loves to tie. He was there. He loves to tie into the, the fact of forgiveness, confession forgiveness with the work of God, Christ on the cross. And for the glory of Christ, your sins are forgiven. Not for your glory, but for Christ's. And, and we look at that and we marvel at the at the grace of God, that he would forgive us our sins and that now we in gratitude can proclaim the great grace and mighty work of Christ himself. We can proclaim and glorify the name of Christ because our sins have been forgiven. And there's the emphasis. I believe that in my own life, and maybe you'll find that in yours too, the reason I don't feel as though once I confess my sins are forgiven because I'm thinking too much of myself. Now, you know, guys, you guys know me. I am not very introspective, so I don't have a hard time with, you know, staring at my toes a lot and thinking a lot. But in this case, can't we, though? We begin to turn about this life is all about us. So it's my sin, my fault, I confess, but God's not going to forgive me. It's me, me, me. When he says it is for Christ's sake that your, your sins have been forgiven. Rejoice in that, glory in that, live in that for his name's sake. Sins forgiven. When our joys diminish, we must go back to the cross. The work of Christ, his glory. Verse 13. Verse 13. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. So the second, we're skipping down, but the second instance of addressing children is he says, not only are your sins forgiven for his name's sake, but I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. Notice what he's doing. All believers, generally, I want you to know. See, what John is doing in the, the previous verses, he's talking about those who did not know Christ. He's saying, they say, I know him, but I'm not keeping the commandments. I know him, but I'm not, I abide in him, but I'm not loving the brethren. He says, those are not believers. Here he is reassuring children. You have sins forgiven. Children, you know, as we've talked about before, in an experiential way, you know the Father. Not just facts about the Father. You've experienced the Father's work of cleansing, forgiveness, and of abiding in your heart. And now you know the Father. And so with two words to all believers, two phrases to all believers, he speaks to us, not only for sins forgiven, but reminds us of who we are in God and that we know God. We have come with the saving knowledge of him, and so we live. And again, he uses actually a second term for children, another term for endearing, uh, of endearment to children. It's the abiding knowledge of God. 
about you and I? You and I must constantly remind ourselves that because we know God, because we are in Christ, we have sins forgiven, and we have the, uh, the abiding, ongoing, knowing, present, tense knowing of God. And we know Him who is to know, to know right, is life eternal. For us as believers, that connection with God on a daily basis is key. Sins forgiven? Yes. The evangelists of old keep short accounts with God. A believer abiding and knowing the Father? Yes. He, he expresses that. For you and for me in, in, in our day to know that not only do we know Christ, but through Christ we know the Father. That one that in times past before Christ, we had no hope of making that gulf. That great divide would not be breached. We could not go there. But because of Christ, we have knowledge. We are knowing God. And that should cause us great rejoicing. It should remind us, mind of Remind us of God's goodness and compel us to great praise. So, though, so now as he has talked to all of these believers and to us, um, reminding us not to be dragged down by our sin, but realize forgiveness in Christ and knowing him, he goes to two different sections. And he, he, he spells these out by fathers and young men. And in this, don't get caught up with um, don't get caught up with the idea that he's only talking to the male subjects here. Um, he is looking there with this to, to two age stages: those who are older and those who are younger in God. And so they're generally characterized by those ages. First, the older. Okay, so and I'm not going to tell you who fits into this category. That is for you to decide. In this category, particularly. Uh, and as John writes, it seems that these are older in years. And we assume older in spiritual maturity, but we don't always have confirmation of that. So hopefully they're older in years and older in spiritual maturity. It does seem to indicate that by the word fathers that some of them have been um, their father, spiritual fathers of children in the body of Christ. So they have led members of the church to the Lord by their testimony and witness, and they would be spiritual fathers. So he's writing to this, this age group, those who are older. And so we hope there's maturity not only of age, but also spiritual maturity here. And so he says to them, I am writing to you fathers because you have known him who has been from the beginning, verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who has been from the beginning. And then he goes to verse 14. He says, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And this is like almost the same, isn't it? Except for the tense of the verb. So he goes from uh, the one here, the, the verb that will express the, the perfect sense that something's happened. There's an ongoing state of affairs. And then he goes to an aorist verb, which seems like I, most would say he's making an emphasis that I have written. Either he's, I've closed the book and you're reading it now, so I've written to you now, or to emphasize that this is now written. This is solid 
solid writing to you. But he says, I've written to you, or I, um, I write to you, fathers, the oldest, because you know him who has been from the beginning. So now we have to, to kind of parse a few more things, not just verbs. Who's the him? Who is the him from the beginning? Who is that? Well, so we look at the beginning and we think, well, it's not the beginning of creation, okay? Because we, we've known him who has been from the beginning, but we don't think, and, and as he writes through the book, the beginning seems to be, as he's mentioned before in earlier part of uh, chapter 2, the beginning is the beginning when the word of God was proclaimed through Christ. So Christ is coming, proclaiming the word of God. John is writing, the other disciples are writing of that. The gospel writers are writing of this beginning. And so the hymn would be Jesus. So I've written, I am, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him from the beginning. You've known Jesus. Well, why is that important? Why is that important? That the fathers, he, say, he says this twice, you've known him from the beginning. The importance is to remind them of their spiritual maturity. They came maybe at the beginning of the church there where John's writing. Or maybe it's at the beginning of, uh, they, maybe a few of them, like John, might have been those who walked the streets of Jerusalem and saw Jesus. But the majority would have been the ones who came at the beginning when the gospel was preached and received Christ, and now they are older in the church. He reminds them that they have a knowledge of the Father, of Jesus, primarily here. That means something. It's not, they haven't just come to faith. There is spiritual maturity that should be taking place here. And that knowing of, the, of, of God. So that's where it comes in. So we have the beginning, and, but the knowing. You've known him from the beginning. When you received the gospel, you came to Christ, and you've lived that. But why would he say it twice? I think here John wants to emphasize the responsibility of those who are older to not just be older in age, but in spiritual maturity. That the connection of knowing God for years leads to a greater and greater knowing of God and a spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity comes with the familiar being with, knowing Christ. The sad fact is, not everybody who is old and a believer is spiritual. Now, we respect them because of years. And some of you looking at me, we respect you because of years. I'm not 50 yet. I'm, I'm going to be there next year. But we respect you because, you, you know, your hair is blonding or graying. Um, uh, we don't have the expectation of spiritual maturity just because we've been alive on the earth and we've been saved for a long time. We can't say, I expect you to think that I'm mature. It is by the knowing of Christ on an ongoing basis, day by day, that brings about spiritual maturity. So in these two categories, he, he goes, fathers, the older to the young. And he says, I want you who are old 
to remember that you have known Jesus, and because of that knowing Jesus, you are to be mature. He'll go on and, and speak of this later in, in his letter. Now, I have a question for you. If you've known Jesus for a long time, how active is your knowing now? How active is it? Are you in God's Word? Are you coming to find out more and more about the grace of God each day? Or are you coasting because you say, you know what? It's for those young people to do all the work and do all the spiritual stuff. I'm, I'm tired. And I think of John, who will, who will be, the, from what we know by tradition, the last apostle to die, the last disciple to go to Christ as he writes into his later years, as he ministers in the churches in his later years, he may be feeling this some possibly 40 to 60 years after Christ's death. He may be feeling this himself to say, this is the impact of someone who is in Christ, who knowing Christ is, it doesn't stop. My spiritual maturity doesn't reach a pinnacle and then I, I hit that plateau and stop. But I am to be continuing every day knowing God. How do I do that? By abiding in Him and in His Word. So I'm asking you, do you exhibit the spiritual maturity commensurate with your age? And that really is the key here. He's placing emphasis, by repeating it twice, replacing the emphasis on the ever-growing, ever-increasing knowing of God. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Well, then he turns to the, he turns to the younger. He says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Writing to you, young men, You've overcome the evil one. And he says it again. So he says, first of all, overcome the evil one in verse 14. At the end of it, he says, again, I've written to you, young men, because you're strong. The word of God abides in you. We'll get to the second. But you have overcome the evil one twice. He's writing to the younger because of this. So here, here it is. I have overcome the evil one. He says, so the young ones, I'm writing to you. Now, understand, who are, who are the young? Um, these young, um, they're not spiritual babes by any respect. Uh, they're younger in years, and so they're younger in their faith, but they're not spiritual babes. We can say that right off because they've overcome the evil one. They've seen, they've seen the work of God in their lives there. Um, but they're distinguished from the, the older by certain characteristics that we would think of, of those who are young. First of all, you have overcome. It, and I believe there that it was saying that you've encountered past battles and by God's grace you've overcome them. It could be John is speaking to those who are, who are actually uh, in the church trying to draw people away, those false teachers we saw in the early part of chapter 2. You've overcome those battles there. You've overcome the evil one of Satan trying to deceive you and to be commended for this in your youth. But you are strong. You are strong. And while overcoming is a, is a sub-theme throughout John, we'll see that. But here, I think the overcoming is the result of the next two points. So strong because what? The statement speaks really 
to the power, the actual power in God of the younger, the demonstrations of spiritual power. Maybe they had power in prayer. Maybe they had power to withstand temptation, power to live, uh, power to keep the commandments, um, power to not depart from the, the faith. They were strong to see by prayer God do miraculous works. But why were they strong? Why was it that they had the strength? And I believe that question is answered by the second thing he says about them in verse 14. They are strong because the word of God abides in you. It's funny, as I was studying this, um, yeah, I go back between handwriting and, I, and typing. And so I'm, I'm you know, scribbling away and back and forth, and I'm sitting right there. And, and so I am writing all of this, and, and I'm writing this, and I am writing, yes, the word of God, uh, no, uh, you must abide in God's word. And I stop short. And the Holy Spirit stopped, stopped me short. It's like, Stacey, that's not what it says. And so I, I looked at that verse again. No, the word of God abides in you. Now, it does indeed, if you abide in the word of God, that, that results. But look what he's, the emphasis he says. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. What does it take for the word of God to abide in you and in me? It does take being in God's word. But it takes a focus, a concentration of not only reading, not only studying, not only meditating, but praying in the Word of God. So that the Word of God is in you in such a way that it abides, it remains. Remember the abiding, the idea of remaining, and you continue in the Word of God. It continues in you, and it influences you, and it influences me. And we see the Word of God do great things in our hearts and lives. It convicts us, yes. It it guides us, yes. It comforts us, yes. But we grow as the Word of God abides in us. And what he's saying about the younger, he's saying, you are strong. The Word of God, and he's commending them, the Word of God is abiding in you. So that, another result is that you're overcoming the evil one. And as you read that, and if you consider yourself young, if you consider yourself young, even if you don't consider yourself young, you ask yourself, hopefully, does the Word of God abide in me? Would, in my own self-examination, would I say that I am strong in God? Am I strong spiritually? If I'm not, then does the Word of God abide in me? Maybe that is indeed my problem, because the Word of God is not actively working, because I'm shutting it out in my daily life, I'm pushing aside. It's the last thing that I do, it's the last thing I think about, it's, it's something else, not the primary. The Word of God abiding in us. It's more than just fulfilling a reading requirement. I, I did my, I checked my box. I read my verse. It's that saturation. It's coming back to it, saying, sometimes we read it and say, I I didn't quite get that. Let me read that again. Let me me try that again. Let me think about this today. My wife's grandfather had, when he passed away, left a, um, a stack of cards about this thick that he had Bible verses on that in his latter years, um, 
the doctor told him he needed to exercise more. Said so he'd, he'd walk the track and he'd read this. He'd memorize them. He'd meditate on them as he went. They're hand, handwritten, little small cards. He carried through from, from younger years to older years the abiding power of the Word of God. And if you would fit into that category, I wonder, would you consider yourself strong? So here are three verses, 12, 13, 14, that need a conclusion. They really need a conclusion in our lives. We need to understand a response to it. I believe that every time we come to God's Word and we read it and let it work in our heart, we respond to it in some way. Either we choose to turn away from it and forget it, or we, we choose to act upon it. So I have, a couple, I have three challenges, one for the whole church. The children, challenge one, are you presently living in the realization of the forgiveness of your sin? See, if Satan cannot bring us down by, by being bound to sin, sin, he wants us to be discouraged. A discouraged believer is a believer that does not impact lives. Forgiveness, sin. And the second part is, is also in 12 and 14, 13, are you increasing in the knowledge of God? All believers are to be experiencing the forgiveness of God and responding to it and living in, in, that, in the light of their forgiveness. And we are to be increasing, ever increasing in the knowledge of God, everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, to know God, to spend time with Him, to get to understand as best we can. So for all believers, is this you? Are you increasing, you growing, and knowing God? How about you who are younger? Are you strong? You say, well, I'll do that when I'm 30. I'll do that when I'm 20. I'll do that when I'm 40. I'll do that when I'm 50. Yeah, later on, I'll be diligent about God's Word. Later on, I'll make that a priority. Some point in the future, I will, I'll come back around to this. At some point. Are you overcoming the evil one on a daily basis? It's not that when you've walked along with God a long time that the temptations don't come. Is that when you're older, you get to recognize them better. Like, oh, yeah, you've tried that one before. You've seen them come around a couple of times. But when we were younger, sometimes we struggle with the evil one, with the adversary, because we don't see him coming. We don't recognize it slips up on us. And so we can be overcome by him. But John says that this is not the way it should be. By God's word abiding, you can't overcome. You can be strong. You can know him. And the challenge to the older, 
are you increasing? You know, there is no retirement plan for a Christian until we get to heaven. And then you know what? We'll still be serving and singing and praising God. You thought you had me there, right? You said, oh, heaven's retirement. No. There is no time for us who have been walking with God a long time to to hang up the, the gloves, as it were, or the skates, whatever your sports metaphor you want to use today, to hang those things up and, and, and get off the field. There is no time. Ever increasing. It's crucial knowing God. You and I have a choice each day if we're believers. You and I have a choice each day to abide with God and to seek to know a facet of our God through His Word in a new way each day. Because you and I cannot be strong without the Word of God. Everything will come and tempt us. Everything, every trial, every discouragement will defeat us if we're not abiding in God. And you have experienced those people and you've wondered how it is that they have upheld under great duress and they still have the sweetness of God. It is indeed the abiding word of God giving them their strength, not them themselves. Are we increasing? See, John's writing about this joy of knowing God. And he calls for us to enter into the knowledge of God. Whether you're older or younger, all believers, there's joy, joy in knowing our God. Let's bow. Gracious God, I thank you for who you are. It is indeed a and marvel that you have saved us. We were in rebellion against you. We were living our own lives, doing our own things. Yet Christ's invitation of salvation was extended to us. And so in grateful praise, we live out our lives the glory of God, for Christ's name's sake. We marvel in that. Now, Father, I pray that if there is those that are here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, that they would come to the point of realizing the grace offered for them they would respond before it is eternally too late. Oh God, I pray for us as believers today that we would know you. Lord, we need you. Often we convince ourselves we don't, but we need you. We need to know you more. Oh God, if there are hearts today that have realized the need that they have in their heart is not for ambition or fame or just rest or peace, but it is Christ indeed. 
pray that you would comfort that believer as they confess, forgive their sins as you have promised, and help them realize the joy of knowing you, of living in the freedom that comes with Christ. And so, God, I pray that you do a work in our hearts. May we respond to you, for it's in Christ's name I pray.